Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of School for Disruptors. In this episode, Kimberly and I sat down with Dom Miller, a fellow Philadelphian. She was born and raised in Philly, and now she serves as the chief of staff for Isaiah Thomas, who is the youngest city council member in Philadelphia. And in this episode, we do talk about politics and community and the city that we all live in, but this was kind of a special episode because we recorded it on the day of Joe Biden's inauguration. And as we sat down with Dom, we asked her to reflect on what the day meant to her as a person in politics, but also her hopes for the future of Philadelphia. What happens when two boss women link up for sisterhood and perspective? School for Disruptors, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Kimberly McLon and Dr. Sarah Goolish. This dope digital space is dedicated to vulnerable conversations about self-awareness, self-definition, and of course, all kinds of disruption. Listen as we inspire each other, and we hope you. You know, I'm excited. I was excited all day today, so I'm, I was happy to have this conversation on this day, so... Yes. What are you what are you thinking? Is this is this the change that we need? Is it just is it closer to the change that we need? What do you think? So, I mean, it gives me a little bit of hope on the staffer side of me because I am working um, inside city government now. And when you realize how important the federal government is and just the like just the implications of being a staffer and being able to serve your people like that is a major shift right so for the last four years you know i've only been in you know been in office for one year now you know we haven't been able to rely on the federal government for anything which is a major gap in support so you know we're talking about everything that happened with covid you know having funding having funding support support for our schools that like we lost a great amount of that support at the federal level so you know just like i'm excited just to have that and see what it looks like to actually have a real functioning executive as a staffer myself and actually be able to start those partnerships and being able to bring those resources um, to Philadelphia. So can you tell us a little bit, tell, tell the people, what's your role? What you doing these days, Dom? So I am the chief of staff for Councilmember Isaiah Thomas. He is the youngest council member in Philadelphia City Council and he's an at-large member. So that means our district is the whole city. I mean, I, I just think I hear that and I think about the campaigning that that must have required to get elected. I mean, you have to get signatures from everywhere. I mean, actually, so at large, signatures are actually easier because we can go anywhere. Yeah. It's not like the district, we have a really finite space. So we do have to collect, like, we collected over 5,000 signatures. Um, and I was actually the councilman's campaign manager as well. So, you know, we've been working together for a, a long time and we had a very non-traditional campaign that some people say because, you know, I wasn't just campaign manager, I was fundraising, I was communications, I was body person, I was creating graphics, and we had a very small grassroots campaign that relied on me and a lot of high school student volunteers. So it was, it was a very, very interesting time, but that sounds like thank God it was only six months. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For those of us who don't know as much about politics, because both of you hold political offices, I do not. <laughs> um, what does a chief of staff do? So what does your day-to-day -day look like? What does your job entail right now? So, I mean, if you would have asked me this pre-pandemic, you know, it would have been this lovely answer about, you know, coordinating projects and like just connecting with my staff and supporting my, my staff. But right now my job is literally just putting out fires um, and, and basically just 
really guarding and protecting and just making sure my staff has everything that they need. Because like right now, what we learned in city government was that, you know, especially local government is that you don't get a lot of resources and everything that we do, we basically create ourselves, which is, which is a good and a bad thing for somebody like me who's type A and I like to create and do my own thing anyway. I'm like, fine, like I'll make my own documents and I'll create this. But for other folks that it, that becomes a gap and a burden in our service. So um, like, so my job is everywhere from sitting in meetings all day, sitting in sessions all day, sending emails, connecting, um, connecting to departments, doing constituent services around quality of life issues. Um, I do a lot, I lead all of our community projects. So I'm coordinating a massive project around um, a citywide community cleanup because Councilman Thomas is the chair of streets and services. So, I mean, it's, it's a myriad of things and most of it right now is happening from this little seat. And when you talk about your staff, who all is under you or who are you helping manage or support? So I have seven staffers now. Um, I have a legislative director, um, a policy analyst, communications director. Um, I have three constituent services um, representatives and I have one community outreach person. And then like, I'm always just looking and grabbing as many interns as I can, because the councilman has a focus for working with young people. So, you know, pre-pandemic, we probably had over 25 interns in and out of our office at a, at a given time. It's a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of moving parts. And, and when I think about like the, the state of our democracy as it has been, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I wanna hold on to some sense of optimism about where it will be, but it's like there's a lack of civic understanding like we as citizens don't understand like how we get the, the services that we need. And you know, even when we talk about this conversation about taxes and why taxes are important. There's a, a learning gap as to like what we actually get when we contribute to the federal and the state and the city government from paying taxes. And so I, I'm just I'm just so happy to have you here because I think that you know, we think about all the ways that things need to change, all the disruptions that need to occur. I think part of it is just giving people more exposure to, to systems and like how systems work so we can really have a, even a temperature check on when they're broken and when they're failing, you know, like in a real concrete way. No, for sure. And I mean, I feel like, you know, with my role on the platform that I have is I spend a lot of time just trying to educate people about the level of government that I work at and why it's so important. You know, most of the time people don't understand, like, you know, they get mad at, their, at the, they were getting mad at Trump or Biden or whatever, but not realizing that, you know, they have a direct effect on the people who are managing the services that touch their lives every single day. And like, that is always such a big learning gap for folks. Um, but then the people who do know, then we get blamed for everything so then it's, it's no there's no in between it's either they don't know we, we do anything or we get blamed for all the wrong stuff so it's very interesting <laughs> when did you decide you were gonna you wanted to get involved in politics when did that happen for you i don't even think i ever really made the decision to get involved in politics i mean like i was a poli side major but um you know i thought that i was going to be a lawyer at the time so it was going to be like poli side pre-law straight to being a lawyer um but that didn't necessarily go the way I, I planned uh, after I graduated. Um, I, went, I spent some time overseas and that's, when I, that's where I applied to law school, which I would not recommend to anybody. Um, and I ended up not getting into any of the programs that I applied to. Um, and I ended up leaving my study abroad program early just because it was just not a good fit for me. It was very unsafe. And like, I was just like, I need to be home. Um, so I really kind of just came home and had like this random amount of experience working for state rep offices working in DA offices just because like that was always in my path as a poli-sci major 
um, and I connected with Councilman Thomas, and he was like, well, you know, you have all this experience and you know, every time, go volunteer on campaigns. Um, and then that's kind of like how I stumbled my way there. And then just kind of one job after another, after another, started collecting just a random amount of experiences um, to, to be where I am now. That's amazing. Do you feel like the, the deeper you get into it, the more passionate you are to keep moving in this direction. You know, it's interesting to say that you kind of stumbled into something, but clearly you are primed with experience and leadership and connection and all of that. And so the more that you like peel back the layers of the onions of what politics is and what it can be, does it make you want to go even deeper? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, in the beginning of this process, um, you know, it, before it got very emotional, because it has gotten very emotional, you know, I was like, I need to figure out more. I need to figure out, like, wh- where the money's going, who's who's making the decisions, where are the contracts at? And, you know, I still have that drive, but, you know, you do get a little bit of, like, this is it for me forever, you know, through this, just because of how emotionally taxing this position is. And I feel like, you know, me and Isaiah have this conversation a lot because, you know, we're both in spaces where we're the youngest and also black. And then, you know, having to, you know, constantly prove yourself to your people who are supposed to report to you while he's trying to report to, while he's trying to prove himself to his colleagues because he is so young, you know, we're having a different fight than a lot of other people around us. So like that becomes a lot. And it's like, you know, I want to do as much good as I can while I'm here, but I don't know if I, like, if this has to be the way, like, I don't think the, the way it has to be me struggling it doesn't have to be painful it doesn't have to be scrapping and fighting for resources we can find other ways to support these systems and I could just do the most good while I'm here right now I'm hearing you talk about that struggle and trying to get a sense of 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 what is it is it just the persistent existence of racism and ageism and sexism is it the intersection of that that just becomes taxing I mean, I've been dealing with that my whole life. Like I've been in predominantly white institutions. It's, it's more or less getting attacked from your own people. Right. And it's like, you see this and you're like, I, I did this in my mind for my whole life for you, you know, especially like your native Philadelphians. Like I, I, like I came back here and decided that, you know, I wanted to just really like set up root here and find the beauty in this place and continue to make it better and better. Like, and those folks, like, you know, you dedicate, my councilman dedicated 10 years of his life to get to this position. And then you get here and then it's from, you know, black progressives, we're not progressive enough from, you know, black business folks, we're not doing enough for black businesses from the old heads. We're not doing it the right way. And this is the right way you got to do it. And then also sometimes like, you know, like I'm active on social media as well as my elected official that I work for. And like the, the assault sometimes and Zeke says it like, you know, like I'm from Philly. So like, you're not only, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to come at me, but so many times, you know what I mean? Like, and me just be like, that stuff is fine. And like, that's, that's, that's kind of like the job as a local elected official is to be a punching bag. And I just, I cannot imagine myself being in that, in that light, you know, like I like feel it, figuring out the racism is the reason why I got a part of the system, right? Trying to really tear that down. So you expect to face that, but then to like get so much just like, you know, shit. And I don't know if I curse on here, but from your own people, yeah, girl, you can say whatever you want to say, whatever you want to say, but just to get so much shit from your own people is so emotionally taxing. And it's just like, I don't, I, when did my narratives 
stop becoming good enough? You know, when did I stop being a black girl from Philly, from Uptown, who just happens to be in this position? You know, now I'm the man and now, you know, you want to rage against me. And I'm like, we were just together last year working together. Like, I'm so confused. So that that is the emotionally burdened burden that is just like I I don't know I don't know if I can do this forever <laughs> that's that's all the way that's all the way real that's all the way real and you know I think that that's an experience that black folk have in particular and I, I, I would imagine it's the same for for people who identify as Latinx who go home and try to you know try to they go away and they come back and they try to be of service in the places where they come from around around just like you know, just people trying to figure out one, how to deal with, with their own emotionality, which is so human. And then two, you know, trying to figure out this idea of teams and us versus them and the lines get blurred. And that is, I remember being in the classroom, my, my first teaching job and uh, there was, a, you know, I'm black. I went back to a school where it was like, you know, it was, it was pretty much integrated, but I had a, quite a few black kids. And this one black kid who I really wanted to connect with, his name was Kenny, really wanted to connect with Kenny. And Kenny was like, you're an Oreo. Okay, ma'am. That's what you are. And I was like, wow, you know, like I, I really felt like I was, I was showing up in the way I wanted, I needed to be showing up in the place I needed to be showing up. And at some point he didn't identify with me. And, and I'm realizing there's so many reasons why despite gender and despite race and despite age, you know, sometimes the things that people look for as identifiers, we just can't give them or they don't want to see them. They don't want to mm-hmm. celebrate the things that are so, that should be so obvious to them in terms of our allegiances and and where we want to show up in the greater work and oftentimes i think it's because they don't even know the work that there is to be done so they don't understand who where the teams actually are and then that's where it all gets twisted it's like you think we're playing for two separate teams not recognizing in the larger construct we're on the same one well it also goes to the point i was just thinking through like when did this start even just thinking about how we view leadership and um why does that switch happen? Because I think you're so right. And I don't think it's just in politics. I see it in other spaces too, where once, once that role changes, the way that you're treated flips. And so, and why is that? Like, where does that stem from? Um, I mean, I, I really wish I understood. And I mean, I under, like in some instances, like I have, like having worked in campaigns before, and like not gone in with the elected official, I've seen them like be like, you know, be candidates and then, you know, go to the other side as people call it. Um, and they completely change who they are. You know, they they may forget, you know, where they came from or, you know, they may forget the constituencies that put them there. And so I can get why some people are, um, I guess, hesitant to make, to just to think that we're still gonna have that. But like, I, I tell people all the time, my number has been the same since I was in the seventh grade and it's still, the same number that I use today and give to constituents, you know, same thing with my council member, you know, we still show up to the same places. Before COVID, you know, we were still hanging out at Bananas, which is a bar in Albany, you know, just doing the things that we did prior, we, like nothing about us had changed. And it was so so I so I didn't understand why we were receiving that type of narrative, like our the things that we were saying we want to do didn't change, you know, we were talking police reform before we got in office, we were talking police reform afterwards, you know, like no, none of our, we, we were, we wanted to support youth before we're, we were working with young people now. So it's just like, we did not, we still don't understand, like, what part of us has shown that we've changed outside of the fact that now that we have these titles. And I think part of it, sometimes it's not about us at all. And I think it's helpful to remember that the resistance that we get from other people so often, and Sarah and I have talked about this before, it's about the narratives that they have about themselves and about the quality of their own lives. And then they're just, you know, sometimes when when people who you know, this is what's been my experience. 
I think sometimes when people who you know start to start to change lanes or or re-identify or to 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 go in places where you never thought they'd go, sometimes I feel like it holds up a mirror as to where you are. And I think that sometimes what we're getting from people when they make when they in the energy they send to us is a reflection of of how they're feeling about themselves and not having a place to put it. And so then it just becomes like a we become dumping grounds for other people's emotionality around ultimately feeling maybe trapped, maybe insecure, maybe unsafe, maybe insufficient. And, and that is, that is interesting. I think that that's like a, maybe that's the cost of like the privilege of being able to, to move through the world with a different sense of ease. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that there has to be things about your job that you really, really like. <laughs> so what are those? Like, what are the, where, where does it become like there's light and joy and, you know, reward? I mean, so it, it's sad because a lot of those things that I was excited for got digged taken away because of the COVID last year. Because, you know, I'm like a community events person. Like, my, I have a, a whole legislative team that handles, like, all the legend, all the policy. And, like, you know, I'm there just to make sure everything's the way it should be. But, like, my love is, like, community projects, like, massive community events. And, you know, that was the main thing that I was looking forward to, which is having access to, like, city resources and city, just city services that I could be able to just put on really amazing community events, community service actions that, you know, I thought would be amazing for our city. Um, but, you know, clearly that got taken away. So, unfortunately, and then, you know, but we're, we're getting slowly getting back to that. So, I'm, like, really excited for, you know, the next year. And, you know, we have three years in office. So, we have some time still before we have to start running again. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the other aspect of my job, which, which I don't know if it's bad or good or not, is just that, you know, like, when things need to get done, like the fact that I'm a chief of staff or a council person, it makes it a lot easier to get things done. And I didn't, and I never really started holding onto that power, or really grasping onto that power to maybe like half, like maybe right when COVID started. And I really had to start like getting in contact with health departments, getting in contact with commissioners to figure out what was going on. And the fact is that they had to respond to me. And being like a 27 year old black girl, you know, with that, I'm like, hold up, like they, I'm not. I'm not just an intern anymore. Like I'm an, I'm like quote unquote an executive now. So like y'all have to respond. Like we manage your budget. So like you know, okay, this department, you know, decides that they don't want to, you know, you know, handle whatever A, B, C, or D. It's like this is a reflection of how your services are run. So it's not even like a negative thing. It's like why do I even have to make these phone calls to you at this time? And then six months from down the line, you guys are asking for millions of dollars. And it's like, you guys are not even working as you should to support residents because we're still getting phone calls. So I tell people all the time, especially like so many disenfranchised people, I love putting that power into their hands. And it's like, it's not a flex for me. It's like, you let me know what's going on with you. And I'll send the email real quick. I'm like, I will email the head of DHS. Excuse me, Ms. Sarah. Hi, this is Don Miller, Chief of Staff of Councilman Isaiah Thomas. Case number A, B, C, D, E, what is going on with this? And we get responses for those, and I'm able to really just connect and make those things happen for people. And I tell, you know, when I talk to constituents, I'm like, I hate that I have to do this, right? I hate that you have to get in contact with the chief of staff or a council person to get your services that you, as a citizen, are, you know, you don't have the right to, as, as someone who has a part of the social contract, you have to go through me to get this basic stuff. It's, it's ridiculous. But because you came to me, I'm going to make sure that you get what you need. And I'm going to flex that chief of staff or I'm going to make Isaiah make a phone call to a commissioner to make sure that, you know, these people get the services that they need. 
And that's, that's what we're supposed to do when we're in, when we're in these positions. For me, that when I think about like ultimately what change takes, it's that kind of like standing up in a moment and leveraging who and what we know in the greater fight for the idea that people deserve better. Like that's, for me, that, that is disruption. That is what it's all, what it's all about. Like if you're not doing that, then you are a part of the upholding of everything that functions to keep people oppressed. And that's the thing about, so, and that's just, sorry, that, I wanted to mention this too, because you, you talk about just disrupting being the idea that our people deserve better is such a newfound concept to folks that I ride on every moment that I get when I'm talking about policy initiatives. I'm like, if we are not going to talk about real practical implication, like implementation, and we're not talking about the inefficiencies of our departments and our systems, like, like one thing that was always so ridiculous to me was during COVID, the city had no way of like contacting businesses or no way of knowing how many businesses were out there that needed support. And to me, I was just like mind boggled, like how do you not know the businesses that are in your city? Like that's just a basic log, you know what I mean? How do we, how do we not, you know, have that just readily available to us? And that was just like such a weird concept for people who have been in government for so long. And I'm just like, that just doesn't make sense to me. So then how are we keeping in contact with the taxes that they're supposed to pay? How are we keeping in contact with the, with the services that they're providing to our communities? How are we keeping in contact with the code that they're supposed to follow? It's so many levels of this, just not even knowing that these businesses are out there. And for people, that is a new concept. So I'm always writing on this. And literally, I just, I'm in the process of applying to grad school. And that's literally what I'm writing my essay about is like the efficiencies at the lower level affect how we can even implement larger ideas. Like you and COVID is a, has been a great, and I mean, it's been a tragic, there's no getting around that, a tragic way of discovering just how antiquated the way that we do things, the way that we organize things, the way that we record things and maintain things, how antiquated it is. And it's been, an, I think for me, it's one of the most embarrassing things about being American in this moment is like, wow, let's look to see how other nations are able to solve or respond to the needs of their citizens simply because they've, they've built in these like, these massive and challenging, you know, systems. I think that's also such a good message to anyone listening and to me to think that our government is supposed to work for us and we need to give it the opportunity to work for us. You know, this past year, my husband was unemployed and he was not hearing back for so long, so long, so long, so long. Finally got in touch with the state rep and then suddenly his unemployment went through and we were both like, oh, this is, yeah, I guess this is what they're there for, to help people. But I think you're right there, that messaging isn't loud enough that folks, and maybe it's because people have been burned in the past, or maybe it's just because they don't know, but I love that you're talking about how, how much you care for these individuals. And I think when most people think about government, they don't think that government cares for individuals because they're thinking mostly in the federal sense, right? And so knowing who your local officials are and what they have power to do whether it's your water or like you said, taking care of your family and your children, getting food, all of those things. Um, I think it's really empowering to hear that and it's a good reminder. But no, I just, I, I think about that because like, you know, I always tell people I'm like a, a political theorist at heart and that's really like why I got pulled into the space and sometimes like, you know, I fell in love with politics because of the idea that, you know, we wanna be a community and that's why, you know, we, you know, adhere to these rights and pay these taxes and are a part of this construct. And like, to me, that is such a beautiful idea that we are entrusting these 
these responsibility people because they're supposed to take care of us and we believe that this state is going to take care of us and i and i think that that's an amazing thing but the fact that people just don't see in that way and it's more of a, a blockage to get things done is just it's so ridiculous to me Part of it too for me is I think we can't forget the history of America, right? Where it's like for so many people, the, the local officials have never shown up for them. So like, and I'll be even mm. more specific. We know this, the three of us know this, but I don't think it can be said enough that for BIPOC people, queer people, you know, those for these marginalized oppressed peoples, local governments have not shown up for them either. And too often locally elected officials did not reflect them or their interests. So I think the other thing we're seeing right now in this moment that we, it may be helpful for us and even for me as an elected official to, rem, to be reminded of is that we're also getting this, this outcry of like probably some deeply seated frustration about just failure, right? Like, and, and that's not to say that like you and your team are the, are, the, are the cause of that failure. You're a symptom of a larger chain of frustration that's now just manifesting itself in a pandemic. Right. So I hope you keep that in perspective as you're like dealing with people's emotions that it really isn't actually. I mean, sometimes it might, I'm not going to, it might be about you sometimes, but mostly it's probably not. <laughs> no, for sure. And I mean, I feel like I, it's, it, I have a easier time holding on to it because I am from Philly. So like I grew up with these problems. I know, I know this stuff, you know, I know these corner boys. I know this area. I know these neighborhoods. I used to run these streets when I was in high school. I would take in the bus since I was in middle school. So like, I, I know this space. So like, and then, and I feel like that also gives me a view of, of knowing how, of knowing its potential. You know what I mean? And like, that's, that's always what's in the back of my mind is like, I think that Philly could be so amazing. I feel like we are just, like, like we have everything we are an hour from new york three hours from dc we are a major hub airport city our, our our living costs are not that terrible we have things you could do we have waterfronts like we have so many just pockets of opportunity that are just not being tapped into and most of that really comes down from just people not deserving or thinking that we deserve better as a city i want to hear about your pie in the sky vision for philadelphia like what are what are the big things that you would just love to see changed? It could be disrupted, it could be built up, it could be um, just move the needle a tiny bit. Like what are the things that you just that you're really passionate about? So for me, um, you know, just being like a body who has to worry about actually like putting projects into action. You know, I I I I really would love for city jobs and city service jobs to become elite positions like to become a city worker is an elite position because you are providing a city a service for the whole you know right now we are literally struggling because the people that and it's, it's terrible to say the people that you know work city jobs or who want to work city jobs or who are attracted to them are not the best of the best and it's not because of them it's because it's because of money you know what i mean like when i talk to you know which, for example like i'm the um the oit connect so i do a lot of our tech stuff for a council through for our office with council and they're like always concerned and they're just like well we we don't get the best of the best that apply for these jobs because 
compared to Silicon Valley, somebody who could be a coder out there making six figures, all we're paying a fifty thousand dollars or something like that. So we're not we're not able to you know get the best of the best to be able to be as innovative as we possibly could be, and that is something that's truly holding us back. So I mean, if we looked at just that basic level, we could change greatly the services that we provide for our people. Just even how clean our streets are, you know, like stuff like that would be amazing. Being able to change infrastructure and, you know, not go past so much blight like that, that would, that in itself, would, I feel like would be the first step for changing so many of the issues that we have because the conditions and the relationship we have with your government, I really feel like it, it, it reflects on how people care about and take care of themselves and take care of their communities around them. Like, why would I care about these spaces that I live in if, if these spaces don't care about me? You know, these spaces look like this. It's always going like this. It's always looked like this. No one's fixing it. And like, I would love to just be able to change that narrative for communities. I think that that same thing is true for every city in America. Like, I think that that idea that like one of the foundational issues we have with our with our municipal management is that across this country, we don't recruit the best talent and we don't care to recruit the best talent because we don't invest in paying to keep the best talent. And I think the same thing can be said about public education. Mm -hmm. You know, like if we want schools to be better, you know, to, to better prepare people for being citizens and participate in this democracy, the voting, the being able to go to work, the being able to be good parents, you know, loving, nurturing parents, then we should invest in having the best of the best teachers. Like to me, it's a no brainer that like every teacher should make as much, you know, like lawyer salary, right? You, I want people, I want all of our elite, our most passionate, creative, innovative, you know, loving people to want to be teachers and then we get better public education. I mean, even in something like the school board, like, you know, we're always talking about this, like the school board in Philly is a volunteer position and you are making decisions on property, education, curriculum, the opening of new schools and you're not paid and this is a part-time job. Like, and you're responsible for the lives and the education of millions and millions of students. I, I don't understand like, in what sense that like that makes like who does that make sense to at all <laughs> like who does that nice. right <laughs> it's almost like in our country we we value people who can take care of things better than people who take care of people i like that i think that's a really simple and very basic and crisp insight yep. no i definitely agree when you look at a lot of our service people, people who are frontline with, with, you know, people who are frontline with every day who we depend on, like they're treated like crap. Nurses. The thing I, I remember, oh, we, we always talk about this um, episode of Living Single. I'm like, a, I love me. A li I'm a living single girl. So like there is an episode where uh, when Maxine becomes an older woman and she pisses off the, the trash men and like they just stop picking up trash. And like the city is just gets terrible. People are writing, it's horrible. So then she finally just apologizes for whatever happened. And then the guy comes in and it was like, Madam Alderman, you may be new, but top of the list of the city is not the mayor, it's the trashman, then mayor, then older woman. So like you have like you really have to see like these, like these are the people that actually matter to you. Like we actually saw that during the pandemic. Like when when trash workers started to strike, it was like, oh wait, like this this matters. These people need more money. Like they, they they provide a really important service for our city. We, yeah, it's so funny. I grew up in the suburbs, had a very different experience. I live in the city now and my kids, like the post, the post office workers and the trash workers are their best friends. You know what I mean? Like 
trash day is like a party on our block. All the kids are out. They're doing push-up contests with the trash guys. They're high-fiving them. They're honking the horn. And our post office, um, our postman uh, comes by. Anytime you drop something off, he knocks on the door so he can talk to my kids and like tell them what music they should be listening to. And it never occurred to me how critically essential they were until I had kids. And I realized like, as I'm teaching them, well, this is what these people do. And they help, you know, take care of our street and they take care of our block and they deliver us important packages and all of these different things. Um, you're absolutely right. We just take that for granted. And during COVID when recycling wasn't coming and everyone was angry, <laughs> I feel like people hopefully got a newfound appreciation that so much is happening and so many people are doing jobs that lots of folks probably wouldn't want to do, but they're showing up and they're doing that hard stuff just, you know, with not enough pay and not enough things. And not enough safety. And I think that part of the reason why all those mm. things happen is because those jobs are all predominantly occupied by people of color. So there's that. And that like this idea that the people who are now holding us down in this pandemic are so often the people who are the most resource deprived, right? Like, I mean, I can't imagine driving, having, having to rely on some of the, you know, like driving a Lyft or doing Uber Eats in a time when like, I would really rather not be in contact with people, but this is the only available work. And I think that that's another, another thing we have to think about is, you know, this, how we talk about equ equity and access and the economics of, of who we rely on the most and who we pay the least. Grow up. Where did you go to school? Like high school. I went. Um, I am. I grew up in Philly. I'm born and raised in Uptown. I went to a um, special admission school called Science Leadership Academy. No one's ever heard of SLA. Um, we were actually the second graduating class, um, and I always loved going to SLA. I feel like it shaped me greatly every single day. I'm like one of those alumni. Um, I still talk to my old principal. Um, and then I went to college in upstate New York. I went to Hobart and William Smith, super tiny liberal arts college, PWI, just, you're running the, just basically just like your cut and paste PWI. Like I, I watch shows like, um, Dear White People and I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've been through all those things at a predominantly white institution. <laughs> I've had, pro, we've, we've done the protests, we've done all those things, Rage Against the Machine, F the Professors, all that stuff. Yeah, I know that experience very well. So, uh, but I mean, I did, but with all that though, I still do love HWS. I've, you know, probably created some of my, like found my, my lifetime friends there. I got to travel a lot, you know, through, through the school, through programs with the school. Um, and I got a really interesting um, education around politics and you know, engaging with politics and there's a life lessons about dealing with people. Like I went to school with like some ridiculous wealth that I had never been exposed to before at being from Philadelphia. Like I always tell people the heir to Johnson and Johnson was in my class. Like Johnson and Johnson, like the lotion. Yes. Like that guy. So like, you know, like just seeing the, that kind of lifestyle, it, it really exposed me to so much. And I was just like, I didn't even know people lived like this. So like that was that was like that for like you know my education always was very like it, it was very helpful in helping me where I am right now because it it just showed me so many different types of people from going to SLA to going to HWS like they were all very interesting interesting places on their own. And all those things are I know that they have all added to the sauce of what you bring to your current role. 
I mean, like that's that's what life gives all of us if we're able to mine our own adventures. There's something in there that contributes to our ability to even meet our own like intellectual creative potential, just like that. So it's so exciting. It's so interesting to me. It's interesting is a better word to see how those experiences are are showing up and who you are as a woman today, you know, and how you move to the through the world today, because they do. No, for sure. Mm -hmm. So how does that how does that show up for you today? Kind of jumping ahead, you talked about, you know, you're very young, that Isaiah Thomas is very young. Um, how do you, how does that most often show up? I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this. Like when you feel like there is racism or ageism or, um, sexism in the government space, like how does it most often show up and sort of what is your response to it? That's a good question. I feel like, um, you know, it definitely, a lot of the spaces that I, I like kind of like grew up through and universities I went through and my travels it really just prepared me to be a chameleon and it also just gave me a really tough skin so like you know the the cool like the racism and the sexism and the ageism that I'm going through right now is like a it's maybe like a couple steps back from like what I experienced at different times in my life like you know going to a predominantly white institution with with such wealth you know you meet white people who have never met black people before and then they also you know don't they don't like for some reason there is a mental block for them but between like my narrative or what I'm saying to be not only real but something that they should actually listen to and I remember being in those poli sci classes and I'm, you know, I was a debater. So I was not a quiet, I was a hand raising my mom as a teacher. So I was not quiet in these classrooms. And it was always, a, it was very uncomfortable for them. And I remember like, you know, my teachers used to have to like, have to talk to me after the classes just because like they would want, they, they would like always appreciate my narrative, but it was always so exhausting because I was always the only African-American woman in probably all my poli, poli sci classes through college. So like, you know, like I, so today, you know, I have a predominantly white male older staff, you know, like some of my staffers could be my, are like my dad's age um, and they have to listen to me, and, you know, and, and, you know, I did research about, you know, working with older, you know, more experienced adults because, you know, I had to arm myself. I know that it's a different experience than working with people who don't know as much as I do. And, you know, I utilize those skills as much as possible, but there are some times where, and you know, you let them flow and you learn from them and you see like, you'll, they, they, they've done a lot. So I'm not going to sit there and try to put them in the box. I'm just going to grab their knowledge as much as I can. Like some of my staffers are amazing. Like my ledge director was a former chief of staff for a congressman and used to do like Middle Eastern politics and stuff like that. So, you know, I learned from them. So I, so, so like that space is amazing, right? But then there's this other space where sometimes I have to be an, author, like an authoritative figure and like, it's so hard for them to receive that from me. And like, and like that, and, and, and that sometimes can be very difficult because it's just like they're either, they won't let a point down and I have to prepare a five, six point essay for why I believe this or for why I'm asking them to do something. And that is exhausting, but I, I'm training this. I've been doing this. I've been arguing white boys since I was 18 years old. Like, come on, like, this isn't, this is, I, I'm used to these waters. Like, come on now, you got to bring something different. And you're from Philly, come on now, I, I know you. I went to high school with you. I used to debate you. I know yous. I know yous. So, so right, right, right. So it's like, it's like, it's not. So like, that's why, you know, it, it prepared me. And like, you know, I'm not, and then even like my travels, like I'm, I always tell people like, my mom freaks out about, even me, even me moving recently to North Philly about the environments I put myself in. And I'm like, mom, do you know what I used to do when I lived overseas? 
You know where I used to live? You know the motorbikes and the ducky ways I used to travel on the unsafe bridges and you, like the things I used to, like the corners I used to go down and things I used to do by myself in my travels. Like I used to travel alone all the time. So I'm like, I'm not, these things are not scary to me because I've, you know, I've, I've been through these other things before and I'm just like, okay, this is another thing. So it, it definitely shows up in my life a lot, so, so much. And I'm always ex- appreciate my experiences. I want, you know, you haven't spent time with Hana yet, but I really want her to spend some time with you and get to know you because I think that one of the best things we as parents can give our kids is access to phenomenal examples of how to be in the world. Um, and since you haven't met her yet, I want to just, I want to transition to a segment that we have that we, we try to end, you know, every episode with, which is, you know, kind of what do we tell the kids? And I would like to know, and thinking about, you know, you know, all kids, not necessarily little black girls, but all kids, what would you like to tell kids living in Philly about this notion of disruption like in this moment in their lives what do you think young people little people young people should know about disrupting things and changing things oh wow that's a good question I mean that's such a hard one I mean I do I do a lot of mentorship programs right now and most of the time I just love talking to my young people about a lot of the things that I've done and most of them just want to leave and I feel like when they see me like they and I talk about my travels and the fact that I'm even still here like I said living in North Philly like that is the one thing I love to impart to them that we can get out of here there is ways for us to leave and like leaving and gaining that perspective from so many other places and bringing that back is important like opening your mind in that way like visiting other places not even just other countries or like going to other states you know like working with people from those places, like learning about the way they grew up, other black people, other people that look like you who grew up in the South or grew up, you know, in other, or grew up in the West, like you'll gain a different perspective. And it also helps you see, you know, your real place in this world. Like I really didn't see myself as a black girl from Philly in that light until I left here. And I didn't realize how my experiences had shaped who I was and the things that I carry with me because of where I was from. And I loved sharing that, you know. I used to teach people Philly slang, like, when I was away, because, like, I was always the only Philly girl that people knew. So I had everybody saying join, you know. Like, they would be like, Dom, just tell me again what join is. I'm like, well, and I have to, like, explain it. And I had my New York friends saying join or, like, drawing. Like, you know, I would always slip that in the conversation. I have to explain that. And I would always love that makeup. So, you know, I tell the kids to take your Phillyness and take it all around the world. Take, take that unique makeup that is us and show them who we are gain that experience and bring it back to your neighborhoods because that is the only way that we're going to change and it's okay to love where you're from it is okay to love this city because people people like in philly have this weird stigma that you can't love here you like it's like you gotta hate it and you gotta stay here i hate being here i'm stuck here it's like you can love being here you can go and visit and you can love being here but you also have to invest in making that space around you better for what for what you feel like you deserve and like, we just don't really have that energy a lot in our city. So, you know, that, that that's what I would tell the kids. Explore, explore, but don't be afraid to, you know, come back home. Thank you, Don. Thank you. <laughs> the School for Disruptors is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, produced and edited by us with music from Laura Crochet. You can catch up with O'Shea on Instagram at It's Pronounced O'Shea, and you can also catch us there at School for Disruptors, or send us an email, schoolfordisruptors at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.